Morning, church. Morning. It's good to see you guys. I know kids are chomping at the bit. Uh, I want to take a second and talk to you about something. Uh, Grace Fellowship moved to Duarte in 2006. And when we came here, in this spot where some of you are sitting, there was this little building. Some of you will remember this. Uh, it seated about 90 people if you packed it full. And, uh, and we, but we brought 50 people when we started, launched in Duarte, and um, pretty soon that, that little auditorium was full. So we added a second service, and pretty soon that auditorium was full twice on Sundays. So we knocked that building down, took a year and built this place, and met off campus for an entire year. And we built a place that was big enough so we could all meet and worship together. And that lasted about 15 minutes. And the building got full, so we added a second service again. And around uh, early 2020, both services were full. And so we said, okay, it's time for us to start strategizing and planning about adding our third service. And then, in March of 2020, something happened. I don't know if any of you remember, but there were some people that got sick, and COVID hit, and suddenly we went from planning to add our third service to actually canceling all services, going to strictly online. Everybody was watching from home. Nobody was meeting here on campus. That went on for months and months. Then we put a tent in the back, and we started meeting in the tent. Some of you will remember that. Um, and that was the weirdest thing, because like the band was in here playing, and I was in here preaching to nobody, and everybody was out there in the tent watching on screens. But that was the best we could do so that we could all get together and, and worship. And, uh, and gradually, we opened it up so that people who wanted to come could come and sit inside. Others could sit outside. Others could stay home and watch. And this, you know, is about a year and a half process that we went through all of that. And by the time we got back to where we were actually just having a service inside, it was one service again. And that's what we're having now. And, uh, but something has been happening in the last few months, and that has been that despite the fact that it's summer, you can look around now and see some open seats, um, this place has been packing out more often than not, and it's become clear as we watch families that come in during the service and look around and go, ah, there's nowhere for us to sit, and they're sitting outside in the heat watching and all that kind of stuff, and it is time for us to once again add a second service. So that's what we're going to be doing. So I want to make you guys aware of that. It's a very, very exciting thing. It's a very positive thing. It gives us the opportunity to reach a ton more people. And it gives you a lot more flexibility on your Sunday mornings. When there's a Sunday morning when everybody's headed to grandma's for lunch afterwards, you can come to the early service. Uh, when you have something going on in the morning or the kids don't quite get out of bed on time, you can come to the later service. This is going to start on October the 8th. So we've got about two months to get ready for this. And again, you will notice this happens every year during the summer. There will be some Sundays that will be packed in here and other Sundays when it's like, 
what are they talking about adding a second service? Where is everybody? But that's what happens in the summer because everybody travels. In the fall, every single year, our numbers go back up and we have the place full again. So that's why we're starting in the fall. It's gonna be October the 8th. We're gonna to go to two services. Now, why am I telling you all of this now? It's because you need to be, number one, praying, number two, getting ready, because we're going to need more volunteers. If you're sitting going, man, how do I get involved in ministry here? What can I do? How can I be a part of what goes on here more than just sitting in the seats and watching? you can be volunteering. We're gonna need more children's workers. We're gonna need more hospitality people. We're gonna restore that really cool time between services where we have food and kids playing and all that in the backyard. Um, and there's going to be a need for a ton more people doing a ton more stuff. So I want you to be praying about this. I want you to be thinking, hey, what does that look like for me? Some of you are new around here. You've never been here when there's been two services. It's gonna be different, but it's gonna be fantastic. And so I just wanna make you aware that's coming. I wanna really solicit your prayers for that. And I just wanna give glory and praise to God because the reason this is necessary is because more and more we're reaching people in this community. People are coming to know Christ and people are growing. So it's an awesome thing. And we praise God for that. And with that, we're going to dismiss the kids to Kids Connections, so you guys can go. And I have no idea what happened to the audio on the, on the offering video, but it doesn't mean you don't have to give, just so you know. <laughs> just want you to be aware of that. <laughs> yeah, the um, question was just asked as to what time the services are going to be. Apparently, Terry is already setting her calendar for this. So um, the services are going to be at 9.15 and 11 a.m. So the early service will be at 9.15. The second service will be at 11. There will be a fellowship time in between those two services. And there will be full children's ministry offered in both services. So um, right now, that's most of what I could tell you about this. I could tell you this too. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about uh, grace group signups. And I'm going to be meeting with all the grace groups in the month of September to talk about the plans, the details, answer questions, all that kind of stuff. So if you have questions or you have ideas or whatever, we'll get a chance to talk about that in your grace group. So um, 9.15 and 11 starting October the 8th, and we will see you there. All right, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask you to do audience participation here um, by by applause, okay, we'll do this by applause, like it's a game show or something. By applause, how many of you believe that the Bible is the word of God? How many of you, by applause, believe that what the Bible teaches is true? Okay, now I want you to do something. Close your eyes. This is like the second time in a row I told you, close your eyes. Close your eyes. I'm gonna mention the name of a person in scripture and I want you to immediately get a picture in your mind of that person, okay? So just close your eyes. I'm gonna mention a name. You get a picture in your mind of that person. Moses. Okay, open your eyes. What's he look like? He looks like Charlton Heston. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, but you just dated yourself, by the way. 
everybody under 30 thinks he looks like the cartoon character in The Prince of Egypt, but uh, yeah, a lot of us think he looks like Charlton Heston. I have this picture when I think of Moses, when I picture him in my mind, um, I, I pictured this picture, uh, there was this uh, series of books by Henry Blackaby where um, it's, it's about how God speaks to us and what's it called? Experiencing God, sorry, just completely jumped out of my head. Experiencing God, and there's this picture of Moses on the cover with the long flowing beard and all that. When I hear Moses, that's what I think of. Okay, close your eyes. I'm gonna give you another character. Jesus. Got it? All right, open your eyes. (laughs) When I picture Jesus... I used to always picture that old painting where he's basically got blonde hair and blue eyes. That Jesus, you know the one I'm talking about? It's like a famous painting. Obviously painted by an American who wants Jesus to look like him, right? It's fascinating to notice that as you change from culture to culture, you will find the pictures of Jesus look like the people in that culture, and so all, when you travel around the world, you'll see Asian Jesus, Middle Eastern Jesus, African Jesus, you see Hispanic Jesus, that's kind of what you see wherever you go. We tend to picture Jesus looking a little bit like us. The truth of the matter is, Jesus is a Middle Eastern dude who was probably short, and uh, he had dark skin, And he probably did not look a whole lot like, you know, the blue-eyed Jesus that all the Europeans were painting back in the day. All right, I'm going to give you one more. Close your eyes. I'm going to give you one more name. Satan. Got it? Okay. Does he have pitchfork and horns and a tail? (laughs) He's handsome. Does he, does he look like the little cartoon character that sits on the shoulder? Is he, is he like monstrous and terrifying and horrific looking like in the movies? When you picture him, see the, the interesting thing is that as we picture any of these characters, um, we don't usually figure in what the scripture says about them. What we think of these people is often what Hollywood told us to think, or what we saw in a picture, or in a Sunday school flannel graph, or what we um, saw in a movie, for example. Here's the thing. Satan is not a cartoon character. Satan is absolutely real. But he really isn't like the picture most of us have in our heads. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about him, but it does tell us some things. Did you know that Satan is an archangel, just like Michael and Gabriel? He's magnificently beautiful. This spectacular angel created by God and given great power and incredible beauty. Ezekiel describes him for us. I want you to take your Bibles. I know you're not used to looking up Ezekiel, so take a minute. Find the book of Ezekiel in your Old Testament. The big books after Psalms, you're going to get to Isaiah, then Jeremiah, and eventually you'll come across Ezekiel. And I want you to go to Ezekiel chapter 28. We're going to have to patch together this picture a little bit. 
Ezekiel chapter 28 and beginning in verse 12, we start to get this picture. Now, Ezekiel describes him and refers to him as the king of Tyre. He, he's, uh, he's doing this prophecy about this king of a place called Tyre who is a very, very wicked and very prideful king whom God is judging. And then he moves on and starts making it clear that that king is really just looks a lot like Satan. And so here we get this description of Satan beginning in verse 12, Ezekiel 28. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, and the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were, anoint, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Unbelievably beautiful. Created by God and endowed with power, majesty, wisdom, might, and beauty all for the glory of God. Imagine this. Did you hear the description? Covered in something like precious stones. Can you imagine this being whose very presence is covered with all these colored stones in the presence of the light of God? Imagine the reflection of God's glory that comes from this amazing angel who is placed in the very presence of God. That's a picture that begins to give you a description of who this guy is. Isaiah gives us some more perspective. If you're in Ezekiel, turn back past Jeremiah to your left and go to Isaiah chapter 14. We're gonna pick up Isaiah's picture there. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. He's called the star of the morning, the son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Lucifer once stood in the presence of God before his downfall. 
But his beauty and his splendor and his power and his majesty and his might, which was created to reflect God, to bring glory to God, suddenly became a source of pride for him. And he said, I don't need to serve God. I will lift myself up and I will become like the Most High. I will rise above the stars of God. Stars of God referring to the angels. And he says, I will make it about myself. His pride got the best of him. He raised himself up against God. And as a result, he and a third of the angels who followed him were cast away out of heaven to await their final judgment. And he has been given a certain amount of freedom to operate on earth until that judgment day comes. So we have to deal with him. And he hates God. And God loves us. So we have become targets for his attacks. The Bible calls him the father of lies. He is the one who comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He's the roaring lion that Peter warns us about, prowling about seeking whom he may devour. Uh, He started lying to God's people in the Garden of Eden, and he has been doing it ever since. And people are fascinated with Satan. They've always been fascinated with Satan. And so we're starting this new study today entitled Satan's Favorite Lies. But let me tell you right now, the study is not about Satan. The study is not even about his lies. The study is about God and his truth. And what we're going to be able to do is we're going to be able to compare the two because this picture that we have of Satan is very, very skewed. And the lies that he tells us get the picture of God very skewed in our minds. And so we need to understand something about this truth. To really understand God's word in this issue, we have to first establish that Satan is absolutely not a mythical figure. And by the way, despite what the cartoons say, he's also not the boss of hell. Hell was created for Satan as his place of punishment. Satan is not the superintendent there. Who, who handles everything. In fact, the scripture tells us he has not yet been cast into hell. He will be, but not yet. He is not the ugly, scary monster who haunts our dreams after we watch certain movies. He's an angel of God who rebelled against him and was cast down to earth where he awaits his final and eternal punishment. And in the meantime, he's waging war. He's waging war against God, and he's waging war against the people that God loves. And that brings us to this topic of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is fascinating to people. Christians love to hear about spiritual warfare. Uh, I did this. uh, I I went on Amazon.com. It's a little website some of you might have heard of. I went on Amazon.com, and I typed in the search bar, Books on spiritual warfare, and over 10,000 books came up. <laughs> People are fascinated with spiritual warfare. Some of those books are nonfiction. Some of those books are fiction. 
Um, There's also Christian conferences on this topic. If you want to sell out a Christian conference, all you have to do is say, hey, it's about spiritual warfare, and people will show up because we are interested in knowing how we're supposed to do this battle. If you want to do a seminar on spiritual warfare, you will not have trouble drawing a crowd, which is a bit of a problem because everybody and their cousin is doing a seminar on spiritual warfare, and the vast majority of those are not biblically sound. And so the church has these ideas in our mind from what we read in these books, what we've seen in movies, what we've gone to in conferences. We have these ideas in our mind about some mystical thing where we're supposed to hide behind something and fire our little Holy Spirit guns at Satan and all that's supposed to work. And we are seriously confused. And to add to that, secular movies have always been able to sell tickets if it's about Satan. So we want to know We want to know, how do we avoid the devil's attacks? We want to know, what do we do if we can't avoid the devil's attacks? Is there there some special prayer that I can recite that will make Satan run away? Is there there, um, some utterance that if I use, it will give me power? Can I put on the armor of God? What does that mean? You can't go to any um, conference on spiritual warfare, no Christian conference on spiritual warfare, without being directed to Ephesians chapter 6, where it talks about the armor of God. We just spent a whole week with our children's ministry doing our VBS on the theme, putting on the armor of God. And so we're fascinated by the armor of God. But here's the thing. What in the world does it mean to put on the armor of God? And I have heard some bizarre explanations of this. And so, how do we keep the devil away? That's what we want to know. What will keep the devil away? Will an apple a day do it? How about a crucifix? If we hold it like this. Maybe we could just put garlic all around our house. Would that work? Wait, that's Dracula, right? Sorry. That's Dracula. We're looking for some kind of special weapon that will help us to win this battle. But if you're a Christian, here's what you need to know. You already have what you need for the battle. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. Now, 1 John is all the way in the back of your Bible just before you get to Revelation. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Go to 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to pick it up in verse 1. And this is a passage we're going to come back to in this series. But for today, I just want us to look at these verses briefly. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. John writes, Beloved, do, uh, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In other words, the the crux of the issue is Jesus. This is the spirit of Antichrist, he says, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Sorry, is this on? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
They are from the world, verse five says, therefore they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. That's those false prophets. We are from God, speaking of the apostles. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, again, we're gonna have to come back to these verses. There's a lot of important stuff about understanding the difference between Satan's lies and God's truth in this passage, and we'll get to it. But for today, I just want you to focus on verse four that says, greater is he that is within you than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit is God. Satan is a creation of God. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. He's the guardian. He's the protector. He's the teacher of every Christian. And the scripture says that if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you. You don't have to hope that he'll show up. You don't have to invite him and somehow create the the proper uh, words that make him come. The Holy Spirit lives within every Christian. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So Satan is real. His attacks are real, but the Holy Spirit is real too, my friends, and he lives within you if you're a Christian. So the Holy Spirit is one resource we have as Christians in the battle against Satan. And for the second uh, weapon, we can go to that passage in Ephesians chapter 6, and this weapon is every bit as important. So take your Bibles and, and turn to Ephesians. It's also in your New Testament. You're just going to go back, I don't know. 20, 30 pages, Ephesians chapter six, where we have this whole section about the armor of God, and again, we're not gonna read that this week, but I want you to know that, you know, this section on the armor of God, it talks about a helmet, it talks about a breastplate, it talks about a shield, a belt, and shoes, it talks about all these things that we're to put on to protect ourselves against these attacks. And then in verse 17, it gives us the one offensive weapon that we're given. It's Ephesians six seventeen. It says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God, the word of God. This is why I began my message today by asking the question, how do we feel about this book? I mean, is, is this just an ancient set of stories? Is, is this something that, you know, just sort of sensationalizes a bunch of scientific stuff that nobody could understand back in those days, puts it into simpler words so that we can understand it? Is this just a collection of good ideas and suggestions? Or is this book the actual word of God by which he transforms our lives? If we believe that it is the word of God and that it is the source of truth, then it's going to be the word of God that gives us the power to win this battle against the lies of Satan. And so I I am not going to, as your pastor, stand up and teach you a bunch of tricky things so that you can somehow go into the spirit realm and fake Satan out and make him fall into a pit and do all that kind of stuff. You know what we're gonna do instead? We're gonna look at the word of God and go, what is truth? And the more you know truth, the easier it is to recognize lies. So that's what we're gonna do. This battle is happening. And I'm here to tell you today that as a Christian, you don't need to fill your house with garlic. 
You, you, you don't need to hide behind your crucifix. You don't need to plead the blood of Christ onto anything. You don't need to um, place a hedge of thorns around something. You don't need to learn a certain mantra that if you say these words, the devil has to run from you. You don't need to do any of those things because guess what? 90%, maybe more, of spiritual warfare is fought in one single place. And if you can learn to win there, you're going to walk in victory. You know what that place is? Between your ears. Between your ears. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I know I've got you bouncing around the scripture today. Bear with me. This is a good thing. You're going to learn where these books are if you don't already know. 2 Corinthians, New Testament, and it's right after 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul now is going to give us this picture of spiritual warfare, beginning in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10. Here's what he says. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So this spiritual war is somehow quite different than everything we think we know about warfare and strategy. He goes, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. For the destruction of fortresses, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He says, I, I'm going to tell you about how you fight this war. It's not with guns. It's not with bombs. It's not with missiles. And it's not with swords. You're going to fight this war differently because the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're spiritual. And then he goes on and he says the weapons of our warfare are powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Wow, what could a weapon be that is that powerful It will destroy spiritual fortresses? He tells us we're destroying what? What's it say? What's it say? Speculations. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the what? Knowledge of God. And we are taking every what? Thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're going to fight against these speculations and the things that attack the true knowledge of God. And how are we going to do that? We're going to do that with truth. Now listen, I said that the battle takes place between your ears. I don't mean that it's all in your head. What I mean is, it's all in your head. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's, it's just fictional and you're just dreaming it up. What I'm saying is that the very real battles that are fought are fought in the mind. Throughout history, Physical warfare has advanced over the ages, right? And it's always been relatively simple to understand. In order to win in a war, you just need better weapons than your enemy. And by better weapons, I mean a way to kill them without getting so close to them that they can kill you. And that's always been the strategy of the advancement in warfare, right? In Old Testament times, we read these stories in the Old Testament about the wars that Israel went to, and the one army sets up on that side of the valley, and the other army sets up on this side of the valley, and it's very much like an NFL game. 
And these guys have got their cheerleaders and they've got their uh, helmets and they've got their uniforms. These guys have got theirs. And then the whistle blows and they all run out in the middle and just beat the snot out of each other. And whoever's left is the winner. And, and it shocks us, it freaks us out. Can you, I would have hated to have had to been in that war. I would have been like, hey guys, I'll be at the back making sandwiches if anybody needs them. When you come back, there'll be something ready for you. You, these guys, you like Braveheart, they run out and everybody dies, right? But whoever's got the most people, probably gonna win that battle. Hand-to-hand combat. And then somebody came up with something called a catapult. And like, you know what? We can light this rock on fire and we could chuck it into their fort and then we don't even have to get near them. And they started winning the battles. And then someone invented the arrow And then somebody invented the longbow. Now you could stay far enough that their arrows couldn't reach you, but you could reach them. That was incredible. And the longbow ruled the day until somebody invented something called the rifle. And and once there were rifles, then that changed the way warfare was done. And then somebody invented bombs and landmines. And then somebody invented airplanes. In World War I, they started using airplanes to drop bombs. And that was the key to the war. And then came missiles. And now we can actually fire a missile halfway around the world and have it hit the living room of the house that we're aiming for. And they're controlled by things like satellites and personal computers. It used to be that the toughest warriors were the biggest, strongest, meanest guys. Now the most important warriors are the nerdy little computer guys who never came out of their rooms and just played video games all the time, and they are winning the wars. Jonathan is very excited about this. (laughs) Very excited about this. We're going to be calling you General Jonathan before we know it. So... So as time goes on, you have to understand, what are the enemy's weapons? How does the enemy attack? And how do I avoid that attack? And God's word tells us how our enemy attacks. He uses lies. So we have to learn to win the battle of ideas. Truth versus lies. And that's why we're doing this series of messages. Today is pretty much introduction. There's not going to be a lot of sensationalized stories about uh, some guy in uh, New York who was possessed by a demon. We're not going to show footage from the Blair Witch Project. Um, we're, We're not going to turn this into a Halloween horror show. What we're going to do is we're going to go, hey, how's Satan winning these battles? What are the ideas that he's planting in people's minds that people are just sucking up? and letting poison them? And what is the truth so that we can battle against that? You're not gonna learn mantras that will keep the devil away. And as much as I'm tempted, I'm not going to sell you for $100 a set of Holy Spirit nunchucks that if you can learn to use them, (laughs) Satan will give up on you. Instead, what we're gonna do is we're gonna learn big truths from God's word. And and we're going to think about how do we apply those truths in our lives so that we can recognize the enemy's lies, resist the devil, and watch him flee from us. We're going to learn how to recognize those lies and replace them with the truth. How to destroy speculations. 
to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, what's a speculation? It's an idea that someone makes up to try to explain something that people don't generally understand. And, and I'm gonna wrap this up here, but before I do, I wanna take you to the book of Genesis. Go back to Genesis. If you're gonna study lies in the Bible, you might as well start with the granddaddy of them all. Genesis chapter three. And in Genesis chapter three, we're in the Garden of Eden. And we're gonna start in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed as God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. That, my friends, is a speculation. There's this tree in the middle of the garden and they're not allowed to eat from it. And they go, huh, I wonder why. Why? Why would God do that? Why would he put a tree there if you're not allowed to enjoy it? Why not let you do whatever you want? What is God trying to hide? What is he trying to keep you from enjoying? Maybe he's just trying to keep you from experiencing true freedom because as long as you listen to him, as long as you obey his orders, you're never gonna be truly free. Perhaps he's just a wicked taskmaster who's trying to keep you under his thumb. He doesn't want what's best for you. He just wants you to be his slaves. If you just do what you want to do, guess what? You're not his slaves. You break the chains of the bondage that God is trying to put you in, and you get to live in true freedom. That is speculation. That is a speculation that lifts itself up against the knowledge of God. Satan hasn't changed his tactics one bit. The same lies that he was telling in the Garden of Eden are the lies that he is telling today on school campuses uh, and social media and on the, on the uh, movies that we see and in the people that we talk to and in the tweets that we read and all of that kind of stuff. Our society is filled with these lies that are meant to confuse us, to bring up speculation, and to drive us away from God. And there is a way to fight that. See, in the end, Satan knows that what we all really want to do is what we really want to do. In essence, we all want to be our own gods, at least some of the time. So he comes along and he places doubt in our minds. Has God really said? He tempts us to stop trusting God. Hey, what God said to you, not true. He wants us to do things our own way. You could become your own God. 
And he wants us to give God his walking papers. Why? Because Satan hates God. He knows that God loves us. And he knows his time is limited. And he wants to take every shot he can to try to hurt God in any way he can before his power is ultimately taken away. So the father of lies attacks the best way he knows how, by confusing people, by getting us to doubt God's love and goodness and wisdom, by tempting us to take matters into our own hands, at least from time to time, and start acting as our own gods. He's been doing it since the garden, and he's still doing it today. But I have good news. Satan is a defeated foe. If we draw near to God, we will resist the devil and he will flee from us. Greater is he who is within you than he who is in the world. The weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. As Christians, we are supernaturally empowered by God to destroy speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you, can I, you and I can apply the truth of God's word and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Aren't you sick of losing these battles? Well, then I invite you to be here every week for this series because we're gonna dig in. We're gonna take these thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ every Sunday for the next eight weeks. We're gonna open the word of God together. We're gonna destroy those speculations and those lofty ideas that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. It's gonna be like spiritual boot camp. And it is gonna be an exciting journey. I cannot wait to take it with you as we consider some of Satan's favorite lies and the truth that can set us free. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, we want to begin by just acknowledging you, by saying thank you, that because of your grace, the faith that you give, we're able to walk in newness of life. We don't have to keep losing the battle that we don't have to rely upon faulty weapons, that we don't have to fall for Satan's lies, that we can be filled with the Spirit and that greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that by your grace you would continue to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ to make us more like you in every way. And that begins with us understanding the truth and resisting the lies of Satan. So I pray for each one of us. I know we're gonna get attacked. We always get attacked. But I pray, God, that you would fill us with truth, fill us with the courage that comes from the Holy Spirit, and use us, Father, that we might resist the devil and watch him flee. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.